This is the Near Future Laboratory Podcast, episode 57, a special mini-sode, which is the conversation that I had with the Domus Academy and Speculative Futures Milan a week or so ago, and uh, we all thought that it was such an interesting... Of course, I thought it was interesting. It was a great conversation, and we wanted to share it a little bit further, and so I decided to do it as uh, an episode of the podcast. So um, you can support the podcast, of course, over on patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. All your support is greatly appreciated. And the other little show note is the manual design fiction is getting ready to ship. So if you want one, now is the time to get it over at themanualofdesignfiction.com. There are uh, there are a few copies left. I'm not sure what we're going to do when these copies run out. I guess try to find a kindly publisher to help us uh, manufacture the next production on. Okay, so I'm not going to say much more. We're just going to get right into that conversation I had with Domus Academy and Speculative Futures Milan. Thanks, Mark. It's really a pleasure being here virtually with all of you. Julian, it's really, truly a pleasure having you as a guest in, in this conversation. I'm going to start with a question that is rather introductory, because I assume that in the audience there are people that are not super familiar with design fiction and with mm-hmm. speculative design and all the concepts that are in that orbit. Just for, for, the, for the context, give us the quick version that you usually use in those scenarios. Yeah, so the quick version is to say that uh, design fiction is a way of creating uh, tangible artifacts from a possible future in order to help activate the imagination and uh, give a bit more context to a particular project or brief. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I often liken like design fiction to a way of constructing the the sensibility and the, the kind of the, the cultural milieu of a, of a project through the creation of essentially like props. So mm-hmm. one way to think of it is, is the, the way in which a production designer will create the mise-en-scene for a film. They're trying to create a, a richer sense of where we are uh, and and the, the nature of the world and the context of the world that is, to a certain degree, external to the, the script itself. So the, 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 the bringing the world to life, that sense that you, that you get when uh, a really well-done production is des- design is done for a stage play, which is dramatically different from just uh, reading the play. That's what design fiction does. It, it brings a, a richer sense of the feeling of the world. Um, and another way to look at it that I often find helpful is to use uh, what I refer to now as the, the archaeology analogy, which is if we think of what archaeologists do, they, they dig into the past, like they unearth these fragments, these, these symptoms, these, this evidence of a world. And it might be just a settlement, it might be a home, it might be an entire civilization. But they try to construct the world through the collection of these artifacts with no other way really to know the world. There's no one still living. Uh, all the records have, have disintegrated. Um, and all, so all you get is these kind of almost like forensic evidence. And archaeologists that are really effective at their job are able to tell a story about the world from just maybe this little fragment, from some little scrap that they found. Uh, as opposed to telling the story of the world from the top down, they're almost literally going from the bottom up, the things that they find around where someone might have been cooking or yeah. where there was maybe a battle fought. And they try to construct it. And the ones who do it really well, they tell these like fantastic stories about it. You know, they, oftentimes they become the presenter on the public television show where they're like, and that's where they ate their food. And, and they give this richness to it where you can kind of feel into the world. That is the opposite of the highly analytic description of a world. Uh, the one that just sort of says what the population was, uh, what their likely trade routes were, uh, what their the, the economy was, what the religion was. It's not just kind of written out in a Wikipedia style. This is the one where you can actually immerse mm-hmm. yourself into it. And the design fiction does that level of immersion. And it often works in concert with other ways of kind of feeling into a possible future world which is those kind of analytic methods. So people look at trends lines, they might look at uh, you know, particular kinds of um, 
directionality of, of an industry. Uh, they might be looking at some kind of um, research that's being done that feels like it's sort of part of a future world. And they might sort of make declarative statements. In the future, everyone will be in autonomous vehicles. You might be like, yeah. okay, well, maybe, but I don't get it. What does that world feel like? Yeah, but what, what uh, is the experience of it? But yeah, but allow me to all play a little bit here, the Please, you know, possible sure. client or possible cooperator. Uh, you, you say a couple of times possible futures, but I mean, how, how do we know uh, if this is likely or unlikely? How do you generate these possibilities? Yeah, well, so first of all, you have to get over the thing of like expecting to know, because we, we know as reasonable people that there is no way to know for certainty what the future will be. There are some people who, who are such um, powerful and effective dreamers that they can make us believe that that is what the world will be. And they often have the uh, industrial uh, capability and the resources to bring those things into existence. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not they will be successful is always is always sort of up for, um, you know, the world will, will remind them or tell them that this thing is, is what we want or not what we want. So we don't know. And design fiction is very specifically not about predicting. Uh, it's about uh, getting a sense of what a world might be like uh, mm -hmm. in order to help in, inform and shape and sort of guide decision making that, that is almost specifically not the kind of evidence-based decision making. So it's not 89% certainty that we're going to be, you know, we're going to live in a world with uh with with exclusively plant-based protein you yeah. don't say that we say hmm it's interesting your so your line of business is plant-based protein i wonder what that world would be like why don't we kind of why don't we create some of the some of the context around that world why don't we do a make some make some other plant-based products as speculative uh exemplars and see what they do to us, see how they make us feel, think, see the way in which they inspire conversations, or maybe even generate new kinds of ideas. Yeah, um, th this is quite interesting. But um, you just mentioned plant-based products and, you know, a possible consultancy in that, in that direction. And do you find yourself in the position of offering some kind of ethical uh judgment on whether something that you uh, explore is desirable or not, or in your practice, is, is it something that uh, you just present and then you let your client decide uh, what what will be for them? Yeah, that's a that's a really tough question, because I, I don't think it's it's really quite possible to extract uh, ethics from any knowledge production. So ethics always sort of precedes that to a certain degree. Um, it's never been a challenge uh, to find the way to kind of represent the complexity of of you know ethics or 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 sensibilities around values within the design fiction because it's design fiction doesn't really take i mean it it's i'm now I'm talking about design fiction like it's just a thing that operates on its own. But when I do design fiction, uh, I, I I'm seeing multiple points of view and perspectives on the world. So, if I'm going to do, uh, let's say, for a for a project, I decide that um, a good design fiction artifact to help us in, help inspire conversations on a on a specific topic is a magazine from the future. We're going to use a magazine from the future, um, as if we got into the near future laboratories, proprietary, um, not very well functioning time travel machine, went into this future world, uh, wound up uh, in front of a of a newsstand. I jumped out of the machine real quick, grabbed a couple of magazines, jumped back in the machine and came back to the present. Okay, what are these magazines that we brought back? And let's say one is like a general news magazine. And we know in general news magazines, uh, oftentimes uh, commercial um, you know, companies will have advertisements in it to kind of represent their business. So let's say it's The Economist. We brought back The Economist magazine from the future. Uh, there are ways in which you can represent certain aspects of 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 the world in in uh, in in ways that gives you a chance to speak to multiple, I guess, which you might say is like ethical points of view or opinions about the future. One is an advertisement from a company that does plant based protein, and in that you're going to celebrate all its wonderful 
potential impossibilities? Or are you going to have an advertisement for the introduction of a new, a new line of plant-based protein? And at the same time, you can have an editorial article that's, that uh, looks at another angle of what plant-based protein might mm-hmm. bring to the world. And another thing, you could have a, uh, an alternative company that's like, hey, come to Mon- do you miss animal-based protein? Mm-hmm. Come to our Montana ranch. We have exclusive resort, you know, exclusive uh, week-long stays where we eat nothing but fresh, you know, fresh-caught bison. Yeah. And so you can you can you can bring a bunch of different angles to the project and represent it in a way that feels uh, I, what I would say is like more complete than just taking one particular perspective. And that in that way, you are in that in that capsule of that magazine. You're having multiple conversations that hopefully when, you know, when when introduced to the client allows them to wonder in ways that they're probably wondering anyway, but they know because their line of business is just mm-hmm. plant based protein. They shouldn't say anything sort of like out loud about the bad sides of it. Yeah. But through this magazine, they can begin to have those conversations, debates and use that to inform what they think about what they're doing and how they're doing it and how they want to represent it and all those kinds of things. Yeah, something that I really appreciate about uh, the way you conduct design fiction is actually the openness to, to a plurality of point of views, like like mm-hmm. you just, just like you just explained, and also the idea of um, uh, concepts and opinions and point of view that are emerging from material that is there and is not necessarily presented in a info dump on the on the on the client so i really i really appreciate the explanation that you just uh, that you just gave but i really have to wonder if you don't find it somehow uh, a bit frustrating or somehow a little bit restrictive that uh, you are just laying uh, options on the table for somebody to choose and you don't really get to take a political uh, stance where, where you ever tempted to 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 be a little more overt in in your uh way of presenting what could be preferable or not <laughs> not really i mean I, I find it actually quite refreshing to be able to not have a uh you know, have mul- have multiple opinions simultaneously it's really it's really hard position to kind of hold in a way and i think it's it's you know just for me it's uh me personally it's uh it's a challenge to be um both an engineer who loves building stuff no matter what or creating things and also being like kind of overeducated to know very quickly and easily how um how much i enjoy the the critique the being able to be you know kind of be contrarian to even the whole point of view that i might hold like always saying like well wait what what, what about this and what about this what about this perspective and wouldn't it be cool if and then also be like but you know that might actually be kind of difficult. Like, what would that world be like? So, though so, you know, take the autonomous vehicles for example. Like, I find it absolutely fascinating. I mean, just from a technical standpoint, and at this exact same time, I'm like, uh, that is a weird, crazy world. If if we live in a world with like, uh, uh, you know, ubiquitous at- uh, autonomous, not just vehicles, but maybe just like everything, and trying to imagine into that world, um, at the same time as I'm as I'm able to wonder in you know feel feel like a certain sense of awe at the possibility at the same time i'm i'm seeing all the all the complexity and all the challenges and i and i and, and holding those two points of view together at the same time i find to be uh sort of exciting almost like you know your 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 mind is going at a particular pace and you're seeing lots of different optionalities and possibilities uh and so it's not really i don't feel necessarily a I'm in the, I'm the one to say what should or shouldn't be. I'm the one to offer like, here's the whole landscape. Here's everything that I see about this. And in, in the conversation with, you know, with a client or a decision maker or whoever it might be to engage in that, like just go into that world and point at different things. Like, look at that. That looks like really cool. But like that thing looks a little bit weird. I'm not sure about what a world would be like that or say, have you thought about this? Like the complexity of all these uh, second or third order implications of what that world might contain and how that would exist. And, and, and so I, I find that actually quite invigorating. Yeah, I absolutely get it. Thanks for this. Um, look, I would like to shift gear a little bit mm-hmm. uh, because we, we do have time for conversation, but not so much. So there are a few topics that I really would like to, to cover. Um, 
In my own practice, when I'm a teacher mostly and uh, occasionally uh, I make games that are about possible futures, but Mm. when I teach and when I have to teach the basics of speculation and design fiction and all the different traditions that are connected to to this, um, I find it particularly complicated to just let the student take the first step uh, Mm. because there is often this sense of paralysis, uh, as in, oh my God, I need to envision this just enormous scenario. And I keep repeating, no, you're not envisioning a world, you are envisioning a small artifact. And from mm-hmm. that, you start uh, with the world. But uh, I still find this uh, maybe the biggest challenge to just let the students go and be, and be creative. What advice would you give to uh, a student that is uh, tackling design fiction for the first time in their life? <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, each particular case is unique, of course. I, I think the, one of the challenges that I've noticed is the, um, I don't want to generalize, but it feels like the our ability to imagine has been somewhat has atrophied i feel like that the the ability to imagine a world through as you you know through a pencil is uh i think it's hard and being able to kind of luxuriate in that and not expect a an answer to something as opposed to uh just the edge of a world is a really hard thing to do. And I think that comes from having a very active imagination um, and looking for the kind of tangential approaches. So I think that's a, that's a skill that's developed and it comes with really doing, you know, like think of the imagination as like a muscle, like mm-hmm. doing exercises, like what is CrossFit for the imagination? So I think about that. And so I think about, you know, what are ways in which you can do like daily exercises uh, to obtain that kind of, you know, that active, really uh, invigorated, nicely bulked up brain muscle that allows you to see into worlds and feel into worlds in a in a really active way. And so, I think one one approach is, you know, if, if it's a specific project, then I don't know, you just got to get to it. But I think one thing is to, you know, literally do like a, like daily design fictions, like every morning, say I'm gonna, you know you brought the pencil example, which is a beautiful one, because we all know it. And we all sort of, to a certain degree, take it for granted. You know, we don't, mm-hmm. there's nothing really special about it. But it's like, every morning, do a pencil from a different world, for yeah. example. And w- what is what is engraved on it? Does it say, does it still say Eberhard Faber? Um, what is it? What is its shape? What are the things that it's drawing? And just and just and just try that and push against that sense of like, well, I don't get it. A pencil is just a pencil. Like, how could I do a different one every day for a month? But yeah. I think it's through that exercise. It's like it's like looking at, you know, whatever you do. If you if you lift weights or kettlebells or go for a run, it's like you keep doing it because you know that there's going to be an achieved result at the end. It's going to become easier. You're going to become more comfortable with it. You're going to enjoy it more. You're going to have to feel a sense of like, okay, I feel myself getting better at this. But you have to do it. You can't just stare at the thing and shrug and walk away. So I like this idea of just doing it um, as an exercise, not just waiting for the brief to come. We have a class assignment or an assignment from a client. Mm-hmm. Like every day, think of let me and the, you know, and one of the exercises for the pencil could be like, I'm going to make an advertisement for the mm-hmm. pencil. Yes, I'm going to write an editorial story about the print pencil. I'm going to um, make a coupon for get get one buy one pencil get two get uh, get two. I'm going to do yeah. a. Um, a uh, uh, a deal where it's like you buy a coffee and you get a pencil. Like, what is that? How can you represent that? And not just say that. So there's a bunch of ideas, but actually go through the trouble of constructing it, doing the, creating the advertisement, not just saying like, oh, I can imagine an advertisement. Yeah. Like, is it for a sandwich shop and a pencil? Is it for a, you know, yeah. a donut and a pencil? <laughs> or alternatively, you need a mortgage to get a pencil. You need a yes. permit to get a pencil. Uh, yeah. You will be fined if you are found with a pencil and things like right. this. Yeah, all that, those, that's... all those things. You just kind of run it down, and that's why I mean, you know, I'm just so we make this work kit. Yep. That 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 provides that you know it's meant to be that. It's I think it literally I put it on the side of it. 
that's on the inside a gymnasium and a court cardboard box useful for bulking up your imagination muscle <laughs> yeah i think i think it's really fitting but uh, what i really like about this uh, this answer is the idea that imagination and in as a consequence, design fiction is also a practice. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would like to segue to this, asking you uh, how did your practice evolved in the in the last decade, I guess, because you've been doing this for, uh, for some time uh, already. So do you see a change in the way you yourself are working? Yeah, that's a big question. I definitely do. I, I definitely and do. we have I, only five minutes for this. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely do. I feel like there was there there was um, there was a sense of uh, instinct around this practice that I had to get on paper, and I described it as design fiction. And, and you know, there's there's a whole uh, you know story about the collaborations that I did to kind of get to that point. And um, I, I I had trouble finding the way to represent its value as a, as a service, you know, like as a commercial service. And then I got distracted because I started a company and I, you know, ran the company. And then uh, eight years later, I, I, I sold the company. And so then I was like thinking, okay, let me get back to this design fiction stuff. And something had changed in the world. And that thing that had changed is that it, it, it seemed like there was more resonance around this practice, whether it's design fiction or, you know, whatever you want to call it, speculative design, doing design that was bringing imagination to to structure in these very interesting unique ways that were not just purely utilitarian design like industrial design or graphic design it was very much meant to activate and 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 contribute to discussions and debates about what could be and that that had changed it was not that way when i you know quote unquote started like 2008 2009 it was very much uh, more academic if anything Mm -hmm. And and now I feel like it's leaked into the world uh, more broadly. And I think that I, I, I'm guessing that that is because those students who are studying it sort of brought it into their, their, their kind of professional commercial life and said, I think this is a thing. I think we need to integrate this into our design practice more generally. Our design practice should not just be purely based on what design research tells us or shouldn't just be based on like design thinking it needs a little bit more imagination and speculation and uh and and we need to find a way to bring feeling into the discussion about the kinds of products or services that we create alongside of the spreadsheets and the bar graphs and the pie charts yeah definitely but i'm really struck by the fact that you say that recently there has been more resonance towards uh, design fiction. That's a really encouraging way of putting that, but uh, for once allow me to take the contrarian part, and maybe it could also be that uh, in our capitalist society, there is a tendency to appropriate and commodify everything, right? So in a way, uh, imagination becomes also a resource to be quantified tapped on and uh mobilized uh, yeah. as a capital yeah um how much do you see this mechanism going on i mean is this something in which big companies are investing and is this something that we like or is this something that we find a bit problematic yeah so that's probably going to happen um i i don't see it happening uh broadly yet i guess i would say um, but I, I think there's a way in which, so it's, it's, it's going to happen, but I think if there's a way in which that, you know, the, the capitalism or structure or whatever it is can be in richer conversations with the, with, with imagination, uh, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And I, I think that there's a way in which, um, like all approaches and practices, it will evolve. Uh, I, I expect it to evolve. Um, in response to just changing conditions, I'm not so much um, like fearful of that. There'll be another thing. I mean, imagination is always changing. What, the, what you know, the the way in which it sort of translates ideas into material form. It'll just be constantly evolving, and I don't expect necessarily to uh, that design fiction as we understand it today, or even as I understood it back in 2008, will not also continue to evolve and change and become a different thing, different name, or whatever it might be. Cool. Thanks. Thanks a lot. 
look, this has been a super nice conversation. And of course, we are not done yet. Uh, but I really feel the need to open it up to uh, our audience, uh, from the students and the guests that are joining us uh, online. Um, I'm, I'm a bit struck by the fact that there seem to be a lot of men in this panel. So I would really love to give priority to some women in uh, in asking questions in case uh, there are uh, some of them. Okay, um, if I can intervene just a second, uh, Gabriele. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a quick a quick comment and then maybe uh, if uh, I'd like to just give a space uh, for Silvio to, to uh, give his very brief reflections on ah. on the topic what we're talking about and then we'll jump right right to the question so of course. um yeah uh here at domus we often talk about and we refer to a re, a visionary approach to de to design that uh, by necessity touches on the parameters and approaches uh, of uh, futures uh, speculative critical design and of course we combine that with other design methodologies uh one aspect uh, of this is that, um, all, or that's common to all of these, is that design is being referred to not as the or the objective design, not as the con construction of a final product, but more of as an investigation. Uh, and and I think um, for us, and as you mentioned in one of your questions, Gabriele, um, you know, one of the, part of the 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 question for us is what is the objective of the investigation right um whether it's the context itself or what element of that context which which we, which uh, julian also responded to so i just uh, i just wanted to tie that back a little bit back to for our students as well um because we don't necessarily specifically refer to design futures as an approach but uh or critical design we we let's say we throw these these uh, terms around but we do have a specific approach which is tied and connected um that encompasses some aspects of this so that's maybe a good lead-in for silvio if he wants to add anything about uh, futures um design fiction domus academy and then we'll open it up to the questions Well, basically, we we started a couple of years ago to introduce these topics uh, and uh, also to explore uh, different uh, ways to combine this kind of approaches uh, with the uh, other uh, more, let me say, traditional uh, approaches to 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 design. And I think that uh, uh, we notice an increase an increasing uh, um uh, interest in this kind of uh, uh practices uh, uh approaches uh, and uh, new new ways of uh, thinking or and uh, i mean having a, a different mindset in approaching maybe uh, the, the the projects and uh, I, I think that uh, it it's uh, it's something that could be uh, that should be part of the uh, uh, of uh, uh, probably each design curriculum in the, in the way which we can uh, have, uh, in the way which a, a designer can have a different, uh, uh, different tools and, uh, and methods to uh, face uh, problems uh, and projects in in, uh, with a different perspective. And I think that, uh, and I have also uh, a, a small question also for for Julian uh, about the, the the manual, and I'm pretty curious to to uh, to know uh, what is I mean the 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 line I mean the the, the idea that is behind the, the 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 book I mean it's called the manual of uh, uh, design fiction, and I'm pretty sure that uh, probably you are not so. Uh, I mean, you are not so on the side of the manuals uh, for, for your practice and uh, the, the way you uh, propose some, some topics and the, the approaches that you, <clears throat> that you have. So my question is, uh, why you should the, the name the manual and uh, which can, which can uh, 
uh, find inside, uh, really inside the, this, uh, this book that we are waiting uh, from a long time. Yeah, that's, that's good. thank you for that. It's a really good question, Celia. So yeah, so the manual design fiction, right? So there it is. It really exists. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's on a truck somewhere in Central Europe heading to our distribution guy in Berlin. Um, and you can find it at the manual of designfiction.com and there's still some left. So the idea of calling it the manual, it was, it was, there was a long heated debate <laughs> in the back room about what the title should be. And, um, I, I personally felt that, that, uh, there was, there were a bunch of things that were going on. One thing that I just realized the other day when I was talking to, um, Patrick and Chris, who were the editors from, uh, no media co who helped us do the book, the. I, I, I wanted to like kind of double down on on the the, the design fiction idea. So the manual, doing a manual, a manual is a, in my mind, it's a design fiction ar um, archetype. It is a thing. So you could, you know, we talked about plant-based food. We could do as one of those design fictions, a uh, a manual, a service manual or a setup guide for one of the machines in the factory. I'm just pulling some ideas. So that is the way in which we're gonna represent a little corner of this plant-based food future. Um, or it might be a manual for setting up a display stand in the grocery store. You know, just a little instruction guide, like an Ikea thing. And so the idea of having, the, the manual is an archetype for design fiction. And so the idea of doing the book as an archetype of a design fiction I, I just enjoyed the like kind of layers of meaning that were going on there. The reason that I, the other reason uh, that I didn't know of until I was having a conversation yesterday was that the the earliest inspiration for me, I mean, inspiration is just like the thing that I reached to was an experience I had when I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe seven or eight or something like that. When I found this Star Trek Starfleet technical manual. And that was that was a that was a moment that was like i can't even describe in words it was just all feeling it was just like whoa what is this like i i thought this was just a show on on a, on tv what's going on here that they have a technical manual and look how rich and and how, how much how vivid it is showing this other side of the world that i you don't see at all you know mechanical diagrams. There's a part of it that's essentially like what we would call a brand book. It's got colors, like Starfleet colors, you know, done up and the typography, clear space definitions for, for fonts. And it's just like, it, it made my head explode. And it, the idea of having a manual that describes a world is so powerful because it is a thing from this structure, you know, that we're talking about from the, the client, the client wants the manual, you know, in a way they want the description that is meaningful to them and to do it in a form that is just pure imagination, I find is like the kernel of what design fiction does, or, you know, any kind of way of translating the imagination. There are all kinds of different ways that we do that, right? There's everything from art and music and, uh, um, uh, you know, all kinds of different sorts of um, very specific design practices or ways in which the creative consciousness translates what it dreamed into material form, right? And then on the other side, you have things like uh, the data analytics people, they're translating what they see about the world into this other form that they just kind of, that is a priority is put on it. Like, no, no, that's real. That art stuff, that's not real. What is real is the spreadsheet that the guy made based on, you know, a hundred thousand consumer surveys. And I guess I'm saying like, let's just, let's, let's not prioritize. Let's find all the ways in which we can represent our, our, our ideas, our dreams in these different forms. What design fiction does uniquely is it brings it into a form that seems legible to structure so that the corporate client like understands a manual. They understand an ad advertising campaign. They understand uh, a um, uh, all these other ways in which design fiction is able to represent the world, and so if you can do that in a form that's kind of legible to them, without you're not, you're not trying to fool them and say like no this thing is real. You're just trying to say like, does this make a little bit more sense to you? Can you see the world through this magazine that we made for you? This seems like something that is is representative as opposed to something that they might see as like, oh, this is highly abstract. I don't know what to do with this. If you went into them and showed them like a, 
you know, you, you painted a, you've made a painting of the world. They might be like, that's kind of cool. I'll put that up in the wall, but that's not helping me make a decision. You create that form of your imagination, bringing it to structure in a way that they look at and they'd be like, I understand that kind of thing. That's kind of cool. I, we can talk about this now. Well, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> I see Silvio and Mark uh, uh, smiling and doing a thumbs up. Okay. Yes. Cool. Um, no, I, okay, I, let me just do, do very briefly intervene here to open, formally open up the, the session uh, to our students as well. Uh, our, our program leader of interaction service design uh, had some discussion groups with some of our students before the, 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 the talk this evening. Uh, Andrea Desiato, um uh, and uh, he has uh, organized some of the students so i will leave it over to the students and andrea to be setting forth the, opening up their cameras and um if possible and, and um going ahead with the questions as i said before i would really appreciate if you would leave some space to some women that i think if we we, we really owe it to you know to if, if i can if i can intervene and go out of order for a moment in terms of uh, of uh, our agenda for this evening uh there is one a general question on the chat for uh and from deborah who says how could we mitigate the risks of uh occidental white man future speculation So in a way, how do we decenter and in a way decolonize our speculation? Yes. If if uh, Julian would like like to t have have a take or has a take on that. Yeah, um, I'm I'm not sure what the protocol is here, but I, I just want to just want to claim that. So I'm not a white man. I'm a mixed race. Um, my my mom is uh, African American. She's black, um, and the so I, I can only speak from, I guess, that sort of subject position, which is to say that, uh, and I also, you know, so I, I, when I was educating myself, that was very much a um, very, very much front to mind. And I'm not not crowing about it or say that this makes a difference, but I studied with, with Angela Davis in my PhD. And so, you know, learned a lot about how to uh, consider um, uh erasing culture very thoroughly in the work work that happens. And so this is always front to mind, at least in my practice. And that that just comes from like personal experience. And also, you know, quite frankly, having uh nephews who I love very much who are who are, you know, mixed race as well, but dark skin. And so I think about the world that I want them to inhabit. And I think about the contingencies of the world that they might end up occupying. And it's it's this common thread. So there's no there's no specific rule that I run or or process, but in my mind, I do think about this because oftentimes the work that I do is about being asked to consider the worlds that we want to inhabit. And I have this through line that is that is that's part of what the you know it stands for what the near future laboratory does, which is our purpose is we make products from the future for the worlds that we want to inhabit. And the idea of putting in that subject position of like the world that I want to inhabit, I do not want to inhabit the, you know, the typical Hollywood apocalyptic, <laughs> I'm just not interested in that. I want to find the world that feels like, okay, we can live here. And I'm also not uh, naive enough to consider that that world's going to be bright and gleaming and absolutely perfect. So I want to know, you know, my questions become things like, okay, so what's for breakfast after the internet collapses? And just imagine like something something goes wrong what's for breakfast in, in when we're living in a state of like a climate emergency persistent climate emergency um or you know what's for breakfast when we live with uh like the constant threat of a pandemic like i i i, I flipped the questions you know down from like the the global macroeconomic the kinds of things that they probably talk about at like davos or whatever to just like the normal ordinary every day where are my nephew is going to play basketball which they do like every day in 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 this in this future world, and what's that experience going to be like? Cool. Thanks. I also think so. It. So to, to, oh, to the, to the yeah, sorry to to the general question. I think so. I, I just come to it, it's a it's it feels vague, but I think it's very powerful. It's like we need to learn how to um, to to dream our own dreams and not dream the dreams of you know I'll substitute Occidental white man with Mark Andreessen, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. Uh, 
<laughs> he's not, I guess he's not an, he's not a white man, but like Sundar, like all the people who are dreaming for us and telling us the worlds that we're going to be occupying, we need to um, maybe not outright reject those dreams, but remember that we are actually living in their dream. We're not living in our own dream. When we, 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 we assign ourselves to, if we're like an Elon fan, it, it's not just enough. You're not just a fan. It's like, you, you know what he's done? He's actually gotten you into his dream and you are now living his world. Yeah. So how do you unplug and just sort of say like, okay, well, you know, just, um, I thought Mars was like, of course, that's the future everyone wants, but actually I don't want that. So now what is the future that I do want? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Thanks. Uh, I would like to go to Andrea for a question from the students, but then I also see another from Antonia in the chat. So one from Andrea and the students and then Antonia. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Gabriela. And hi, everyone. Thanks, Julian, for being here. Um, I think we have a question from Mary. Uh, Mary is one of our students in the service design uh, master. Uh, Mary, can you, are you able to unmute yourself? Yes, yes. Okay, um, yeah, so as Andrea said, I'm in the service design master, and um, I also have a little bit of a background in manufacturing engineering. So I'm wondering with your background in engineering, which can quite uh, can sometimes be quite analytical and concrete, how do you make sure that this um, way of thinking or process of the engineering field doesn't hinder your creativity when working on something as imaginative and theoretical as design fiction. Yeah, uh, so you're absolutely right. So engineering is typically like quite analytic and um, utilitarian. Uh, well, I think I think I, th I think it's it's just how my practice has evolved to where um, you know I, I am an, I am an engineer. And the engineering kind of practice just kind of got tangled up with my imagination and my kind of creative consciousness to where like the things that were most interesting to me as as engineering practice were things that did not seem like typical engineering. It, it's almost like where a lot of the design fiction thinking played itself out as I was trying to figure out how to describe it and what it was. I was making like kind of, you know, what, what I would say, you know, they were, they were artifacts from a different world. I mean, clearly they were not things that necessarily resonated with, oh, that's an amazing idea. Like, let's start make let's make, make a million of them. Uh, there were things uh, like, there was like a slow messenger project, I think is probably the one that I documented most thoroughly, which was a messaging device that received, received messages very, very slowly. And it was just like a little bit of a weird creative conceit to like invert the the notion of like you know well we get messages and we want them to come as quickly as possible to where this this device it required that you that you moved with it and that you held it and those were ways in which it sort of started revealing the messages and um, as a as a thought experiment it's interesting but as an engineer that wasn't satisfying enough so I actually had to build the thing. You know, you do you do the electrical design, schematic design, schematic capture, uh, make the boards, uh, assemble the boards, and actually see what the thing was like. And realizing that going through that process of actually doing the kind of quote unquote engineering was part of the experience of learning what this what this what this thing was and what it said about our culture at the time, which was all about faster, faster, faster. I mean, it still is. And find the ways in which you have that conversation about that world through engineering not just through a philosophical essay or a cultural critique of the world, or even just with a conversation with friends. Like, hmm, have you ever wondered like why we want to get messages faster and faster? Why does bandwidth have to go up and up? Suppose the world were like different. And I wanted to have that. I wanted to ask that question as an engineer, as well as an overeducated kind of cultural commentator guy. Um, and I wanted to do those things simultaneously. So my engineering practice broadened. And I think that's a, to speak to you more directly, Mary, I think that is integrating that way of thinking about the work, I think is is invaluable. It broadens your ability to think of these skills and capabilities that you're developing, not in a siloed fashion, but as something with like a lot of range. So you're, you're kind of moving across and doing both the kind of utilitarian technical work at the same time as you're asking these other really important questions. That is the practice. The engineer shouldn't just be the silo person. It's like the guy who did the Star Trek Starfleet 
technical manual. He was an engineer. He was like a mechanical designer, a design engineer and for an aerospace company. So this is the kind of stuff he did all day. He drew these mechanical diagrams. This was in uh, the mid uh, 70s. 1976 was when he did it. And he do. So that was his work. But he just said, like, I am also going to bring my imagination to this. I'm not going to just be drawing these kind of cross sections of like engines or control panels or whatever it was he was doing for the aerospace company. He was like, I'm going to bring this fictional world into this. And he was just so highly motivated and driven to that, obviously a very creative guy where he wasn't finding that, that the ability to exercise his creative consciousness just in his day job. But I think that should be part of the practice of what we do all day. It shouldn't be the extra thing that you do on the side or you stay late at work. It should be part of the practice. Like we're making this thing that will exist in the world in some very near future. Like let's really stretch it out. Like let's not just, you know, stick to, the utilitarian plan. Let's see what else Figma can do or whatever tool that you end up using. Thank you, Julian. Thank Sorry, you, uh, Gabriele, I think yeah. uh, I'll leave the word to you because we have a question in the chat. I'm having yeah, yeah. issues in allowing uh, my other students in as panelists. I don't know if the host can help us. In this, okay. the students can write the questions in the chat. Sure. Okay. Meanwhile, I'm going to paraphrase uh, the question from Antonia from the from the chat. Um, so, in essence, she is asking for uh, your best advice on a great case study that she could use to show to a potential employer and say, "Hey, look, design fiction and in general this kind of imagination-based uh, methodology." can really expand the way we think about possibilities. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, possible employers can be a bit recalcitrant in, in, in this. Uh, and, you know, having a great example already at hand is, uh, is beneficial. What would you advise? Yeah, there, there are a number of really uh, good projects. Often, uh, the, sometimes some of the better ones, unfortunately, are like, you know, behind closed doors, which is which really bums me out, because sometimes I think it's like, man, this is really good uh, project. Um, but I think the probably, I still think the canonical design fiction project is uh, the one we did a long time ago called TBD catalog. And this is just like, it's a catalog of products from the future. And I think because it it brings so much of what people expect uh you know the, the things that we associate with kind of product design in a in a kind of routine way i think that's that's one of the one of the best examples uh that that comes to mind immediately because it's it feels it's tangible it's real you know it's something that we kind of we printed it feels like a catalog it behaves like a a a, a um, a catalog. It it gets people to wonder. I think finding the examples of things where people are like, wait, what's going on here? I don't get it. And you want that kind of question. When someone says like, I don't get it, it gives you an opportunity to say like, well, let me explain how this works and what it can do and how it can sort of shape and generate new ideas and a way of exploring uh, a sense of possibility. Um, and there is a free PDF of that on the Near Future Laboratory yes, website, or at is. least there used to be. <laughs> so there that's is, good to know. There is. Yeah. Cool, appreciated. Um, Andrea, do you have uh, other students online? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mahika just joined us. So, Mike, I think you can now uh, ask your question. Yeah, hi, uh, I'm Mahika. I'm from Interaction Design uh, 2020 batch. Uh, my question is, while speculative design offers plenty of opportunity for designers to push boundaries and think as creatively as possible, what do you think are the few drawbacks and challenges you faced in your career? And how do you overcome these challenges on our day-to-day -day life? Because it cannot be easy to come up with a new creative, imaginative idea every day for your project or brief. So what are the certain steps you take to overcome these challenges? Yeah. I think, well, the biggest challenge is that this approach uh, is still quite, um, pe pe people don't, people don't, they don't necessarily like get it straight off. So I think if you said someone, if you, if you told someone now in, in the world, in the, in the kind of commercial world, let's say, you know, you're, you're trying to, 
get an assignment from a client, you said like, we do design thinking, they'd be like, oh, okay, I've heard about that. I know about that. That's, that's, uh, that, that seems something that I, that is legible to me. If you tell them like, we're going to make you a product from the future, they're going to be like, Hey, what? And so I think it, there's a lot of work to be done to overcome, uh, and to essentially make it, uh, you know, more, more legible as a practice. So I, I find that to be, I find that to be challenging. Um, I also think that uh, it's challenging to be sort of like multidimensional. So um, to be an, an, an engineer, a product designer, an entrepreneur, someone who loves to nerd out on, on, on things that they don't know about, who can also program, uh, no one knows really where you're supposed to sit and how you're supposed to you know, participate and contribute. So because the, because the world of, of uh, design, I guess, is so broad, but has also become quite um, spe- hyper specialized. You know, okay. to where people say people say what they're you know like I'm a UX designer. Like, what about just being a designer? And even usually, UX designer means, oh, you know how to you you work well in a nine by sixteen aspect ratio, mobile design based context. Cool. We need some of that. We need more of that. Whereas you say like. I can do whatever you want yes. and, 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 not, and, not be, and be serious about it. It's like, look, look at this commercial app that I built for the company that I created that I built and, and ended up selling. And they say like, well, what are you, you, so you're, you want to start another company? It's like, I don't know. I, I, I want to apply my creative consciousness to make the world a more habitable place. And then they look at you and they just like, what? <laughs> So I think it's just coming, com- becoming comfortable with the fact that, you know, maybe you've got a lot of range and ability and just, and um, that, that's really hard. That's not a, that's a, it's a, it's a beautiful and enviable position to be in. And it's also hard to find the place to fit in the world at this particular moment. I think design is in a little bit of a trough. I talk to a lot of people who are not satisfied with what they do for a living as a designer, because they're just told like, look, just open up Figma and get to it. And, and they're not, the, the the allowances for an expansive creative consciousness are really quite hindered at this particular moment. And I think that it's a cycle. It'll it come back some, at some point, you know, there'll be a demand for real true imagination and true innovation, not just the kind of innovation that makes the app work faster. And that there'll be another kind of, I, what I hope will be a Renaissance in, 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 uh, for creativity. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, I think, uh, of, of course, uh, there are plenty of super interesting questions, but also I'm mindful of the time and of the energy that Julian is uh, uh, kindly uh, granting us. So I'd say another question from a student and then maybe another question from the chat. And then we see what time uh, it is, because uh, I guess that uh, uh, at some point we need to we need to wrap up. But first, another student I would like to invite. Yeah, Gabriele, you can find the questions in the chat. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, but I wanted to to go to a student if there is one uh, ready. If yeah, not, yeah. the 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 questions have been uh, written in the chat because we were having like ah okay. Uh, no, okay. Maybe maybe Sergi is also Sergi. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay, perfect. Hello. Well, hello everyone. Hello, Julian. Uh, thank you Hi. for this evening. Uh, my it's pleasure. A very interesting talk. And uh, actually, my question uh, is related to the origins of design fiction. And maybe I would like to ask you to reflect a little bit about its connection to futurology and science fiction, science fiction literature, and also cinema. And uh, also, just to add my personal perspective on this, uh, as I feel like we're living in times when we're getting a little bit uh, thin on ideas about what's next because we are used to have this information about the future from all of this media and now we are living in this future thank you yeah uh thank you for that so so to the origins thing um there was a a lot of inspiration came from from uh, I, I, you know, from Franz Joseph, who was the guy who did the Star Trek Starfleet technical manual. So I, 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 he was using that as an example through which I could, I could, I, for myself, I could try to 
analytically understand what I felt when I was a little kid, you know, like, because when I was a little kid, I didn't have the language. I just felt like, oh man, it's cool. And so as an, as a, you know, like an overeducated analytic kind of academic, I was like, what did you mean by cool? And at the same time, I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to be in Los Angeles when Bruce Sterling was here. And so um, in sort of, in the sort of academic world of Los Angeles, we were interacting we were hanging out. We were talking about this stuff, and also there was a there was an article that Genevieve Bell and Paul Durish had written uh, that described um, I can't remember the title, which just went on my head. That described uh, the way in which they they that that ubiquitous computing, which was a which was a big topic um, uh, back in the in the early two thousands. The way the kind of create the creative ideas within ubiquitous computing computer science professors and engineers could be directly linked to the experiences they had when they were kids and the kinds of shows that they watched. And I just thought that was amazing. I was like, of course, like, where do our ideas as, 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 as buttoned up as you might feel as like an engineer, it's like, no, no, this is, this is all adult stuff. It's like, actually, you know, it came from the things that you, the world that you wanted when you were a kid, you know, playing around watching space 1999 or whatever the shows are that you watch star Trek for me. And that became fascinating to me to, to try to understand that. And I wondered, my question to myself was, can we bring, can, aside from like writing about that and that, and, and describing that relationship and just sort of pointing at it, could we actually productively use the kind of imaginary that, that is evoked around science fiction as a way to inform and shape uh, our, our, our it, it, as as a as another kind of tool for thinking about the future. So rather than just doing analytic perspectives, you know, doing surveys or looking at trend lines, and rather than just writing science fiction, is there something in between? Could we make objects that might be might be a science fiction prop, but that that look as if the the world exists? And so for me, because I'm not a science fiction writer. And because I'm not a very good businessman, I can operate in that world where I can bring my imagination into conversation with both sides of that and do it through the thing that I really enjoy doing, which is making stuff as an engineer and product designer. Like I like to make things more than I like to, more than I'm able to write stories about things and more than I'm able to actually create a company to make a thing. I mean, I did that once and that was enough for me. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, um, I think that the paper that you were referring to is titled Resistance is Futile, Reading Science Fiction Alongside Ubiquitous Computing by Dorish and Bell. I'm a really big That's fan it. of that paper. Very uh, good. Excellent. Beautiful well, paper. Yeah. And I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, 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 you reference to people that I worked with and I'm a big fan, big fan of, so I'm really jumping up and down in excitement. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, uh, somebody put it in the chat. Yeah, there is a PDF yeah. uh, available. Yeah. Um. Okay, so I have a final question from the chat from Paula Castillo. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I also see that there are other questions piling up, but maybe, uh, Julian, you can give a way to, to reach you. I don't know if you are on Twitter or on Mastodon or on Discord, wherever. But first, I want to go to uh, um, uh, a question from Paula Castillo uh, that writes in the chat, aren't you worried that you can mislead your clients in the wrong direction? as in, in the wrong future or in a future that never happens. I think we already touched upon that a little bit in the beginning of our conversation, but let's really take the worst case scenario that you imagine something that really never happens in a million years, or you, 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 you support a really horrible decision by one of your clients. Would you consider yourself morally responsible for that? <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that question. I'm totally comfortable with my ethics and my values and, and I can't help but I mean, those leak into the work that I do and I, I, uh, so yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm not worried at all. I don't feel like that the work that I do is, is irresponsible. I'm, I'm very comfortable with, with my approach and my sensibilities and again, like my values and ethics. And so, um, yeah, that's to say, I feel like I've had enough time in this world to be confident in that. Uh, so I'm not worried about that any more than, I don't know, 
like I'd be worried that I'm going to walk out on the street and shoot someone like I, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so I don't see how, how anything, you know, bad could happen. And if it, if it, if, if something that I consider bad happened on behalf of the client, I wouldn't hold myself responsible for that. Yeah. If it, it makes I, sense. I don't know how else to describe that. It's, I, uh, I, I understand the thing because, because people oftentimes think like, well, uh, I mean, design fiction, it, I mean, you could, you could tell someone like a bad story about the world and then they'll, Go forth and do it, and and the way I frame it, and the way I do these things, that that just, it just hasn't happened, and I can't imagine how it would. And one of the reasons why is because I I don't I. This might just be in particular to my own approach to doing design fiction. So I don't I I'm just not drawn to creating worlds that are, that are they're they're complex and they're rich, but they're not dark. Yeah. They're, they're not purposely dark. They're, and, and I think also the particular way in which I, I'm not saying that this, everyone has to do this with design fiction, but my particular take on it, like imagine yeah. I'm a comic, like there are lots of different kinds of comics. There's some that are very dark. There's some who prefer kind of like not safe for work humor. There's some who are dry and kind of, you know, I'm the design fiction comic who there's a certain sense of the worlds I create where it's like, almost like the, you know, the comic who does like, you ever wonder why, <laughs> like, that's how they lead things. Like I'm that, that's what I do in design fiction. I show you something like, do you ever wonder why the world looks this way? And it's, it's not the, the, the tonality is meant to, I, I try to drive people to the point where they do wonder and they don't shy away. Like they want, they want to go into it further. So there's, there's a, there's a, there's a veneer of of humor to it. And I think it's an incredibly powerful emotion to evoke because it lets people sort of they're, they, they open up in a way they, they might have, a, if I do something and I, and it makes me laugh, I'm like, that's going to work because someone else will laugh and they'll kind of be like, man, that's, yeah, that's kind of cool. Like, let's talk about this now. What does this mean? Um, and so I try to find the way to introduce that. And I think that's the thing that to a certain degree, it's avoidant of like the wrong direction. I'm not sure what wrong direction means to be honest, but I think that, um, I, I find myself in, in a position where I work with clients, thankfully, that are art. They do feel like they're, they're doing the right thing Yeah, from their, I, from their perspective. I do recognize in this question a lot of worry that I see in, in the younger students about, yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh, my God, I, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a future and I don't even know if that is probable or whatever. So uh, what, what good is this? But I think that your answer makes perfect sense. And I think that it should take away this preoccupation. And uh, it's just a matter of crafting and exercising this craft, I guess. Yeah, I, I get it. There's there's a lot of future anxiety, a lot of future anxiety, a lot. I mean, yeah. I, I remember feeling it a little bit when I was growing up and it was, it was always like, who was it? It was like, it was uh, that, that someone, you know, like, um, just the politics to me felt they generated a lot of anxiety. I remember when I was like in junior high, you know, it was like, Oh man, are we going to go to war? Um, and so I can imagine that now, particularly given that these kind of existential challenges and my approach to that, my, I think the consideration and it comes back to this idea of like, uh, it's, it's, it's like, we, we need to, we need to dream a sense of like habitability and possibility. So, in a world where we where we have to deal with as as we are dealing but we're dealing with more substantively let's say climate challenges and the and the kind of sense of like um what that world might be like like let's go to that world and let's ask ourselves like what's for breakfast and let's make sure that it's not that that we're not having to like i don't know militarize our families let's look at let's look at the world with a sense of like a sense of possibility and a sense of hope without getting exuberant to the point where you're like, Oh, it's going to be utopian. It's going to be beautiful. It's amazing. So it's going to be as rough as it is today. Yeah. And as rough as, as rough, as rough as life has always been. Yeah. 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 If you yeah, take yeah. it like at a broad <laughs> historical perspective, you know, it's like, um, there there's, there's, there's a sense of like survivability. I think that is at the kernel of, of, of humanity. And so what does that survivability look like? And what are all the directions of it? It's like, okay, you can do the whole bunker survivor thing, but what else? Like what, what are the other things that you can dream? And when you start dreaming into them and you start feeling into them with a sense of, 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 of almost like a, like a forced confidence, then that world starts materializing. 
And I think that's how worlds come come to be. You have a sense of like confidence in the ability to achieve this world. And it's a kind of, it's a kind of confidence that we only associate with, you know, again, back to like the, the big um, charismatic dreamers, you know, Elon and Jack mm -hmm. and who, Jeff and who all the other guys, but, but what else, like, what about our dreams and how can we start conversations and build networks of, you know, like shared willingness to dream into these possible worlds. And I think design fiction is one way in which you can do it really effectively because you start going to those worlds that you want to inhabit and you bring back the things. And when you start bringing back the things, people start feeling into that world in a way that they wouldn't if you just sort of said like, I don't know, it's all going to burn down anyway. Forget it. I might as well make an apocalyptic film because that's yeah. the world that we're going to get. See you guys is going to suck. Um, the, the film that Arup did recently, Abundance, if, if there's a way that you can mm -hmm. kind of look at that, I think it does a wonderful job of sort of showing the world in, in, a, in a certain sense of like banal um, optimism, like this is what it might look like. Yeah, definitely. Okay, uh, thanks for this. This has been uh, really truly interesting. Uh, I can imagine that there are plenty okay, of Okay, that's that. Uh, it was a fun conversation. I like the kind of extemporaneous chit-chat about uh, creative practice, particularly around design fiction. And it's, it's really helpful for me to just kind of say some of these things out loud because uh, it reinforces the things that I'm thinking, which are sometimes difficult to kind of get out in some kind of legible form. So I really appreciate uh, Domus Academy and um, especially the folks at Speculative Futures Milan for reaching out and inviting me to uh, to contribute to their all their work. So don't forget, you can support the podcast over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. Your support is graciously accepted and very much appreciated. And thanks to all my wonderful patrons over there. Um, don't forget about the manual of design fiction, the manual of designfiction.com. Still some copies available, so you want to get those. Word is that, that the, uh, the books arrived um, via truck at our distribution guy in Berlin. So they should be going out uh, quite soon. And uh, there are a bunch of other fun things that are going to be coming uh, coming up soon, including um, restarting, uh, getting into season three of General Seminar. So check that out over at generalseminar.com and uh, keep an eye out for when I'll, uh, when I'll be starting that again. Okay, so that's been episode 57, Near Future Laboratory podcast. I'm Julian. And I'm out.